Stephen Kocher disappeared from Henderson, Nevada on Sunday, December 12, 2009. Since then, many podcasts and shows, including Disappeared, have covered his case, trying to get to the bottom of it. Well, today, you're going to get to hear from someone who was on the ground in Las Vegas as information was being uncovered in late 2009 and into 2010. This person was at the press conferences, met Stephen's parents, and even took part in a search. Who was that person? Me. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. listen to the intro, you already know that this episode of Unfound is going to be a little unique. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that the format of this program is I do an introduction, I talk, have a little bit of a theme to start the show, tell you about the information, I give you a summary, and then we do an interview with a family member, a friend, or a reporter who knows a lot about the case. I let those people tell the story. I ask the questions. I try to ask the questions that I think all of you would ask if you could. I do not see myself as a source of information. I see myself as a reporter. I conduct the show this way because I'm not convinced that anybody wants to listen to me for an hour spout off information that other people have collected. It's going to be a little bit different today because there's no interview, but the information that I'm going to be talking to you about is information that I personally collected while I lived in Las Vegas during the time when Stephen Kocher disappeared. I'm going to be able to give you an inside look that all of those other shows have not been able to do, frankly, because none of those people were there. What that means is I'm not going to go over every single detail of the disappearance. You can find that information. There are a lot of other podcasts who have done that. I mentioned the, the disappeared episode. Instead, I'm going to tell you how I got involved, what I did, how I was a resource of information for everybody else who didn't live in Las Vegas. I'm going to tell you about meeting Stephen's parents, going on a search, being there for a couple press conferences, and I'm going to tell you what it was like to be on the cutting edge of a disappearance that people around the United States were just learning about at the time. What I'm hoping all of you get out of it, besides learning some new information about Stephen's disappearance, and that's going to happen in this episode. You're going to turn off this episode at the end and know more than you do now. But also, I hope you can use my experience as a template for yourself in case a disappearance happens near you and you want to get involved and you want to go to WebSleuth or Reddit, someplace like that, and take part in a search and get into it more maybe than you've gotten into any other missing persons case. 
out there so far. I'm hoping you can use my experience as a way to give yourself the confidence to do it yourself. Because when I got involved in this, I was just a regular guy. Of course, no true crime podcast to speak of. I wasn't even 40 years old yet. But suddenly, when people found out, for example, on Web Sleuths, that I was from Las Vegas, that they started asking me questions and wanted me to do things. Can you drive up there and check this out? Can you go here and check that out? And I was more than happy to do so. I was happy to be part of a bunch of amateur sleuths who were taking an interest in the case and trying to turn up new information. But before I get into my personal experience with the Stephen Kocher case, let's do some unfound news and unfound business. Unfound news. Did you catch the special Kimberly Raymer live show from last Sunday, August 19th? It went very well. Lots of viewers, lots of questions. Her mother, my guest, was in the audience along with people who personally knew Kimberly. We went a little deeper into theories, and I also compared and contrasted her case to some others Unfound has covered. If you missed it, you can find it on YouTube. Next, I am back in Florida. I drove back over the night of Tuesday into Wednesday morning, so I can get back to working 100%. As you would expect, when I'm with family, Unfound work, outside of producing the episodes, takes a back seat. Frankly, I was just happy getting the newsletter out for August. So, be looking for new shirts, books, and other merchandise that I can now work on. Finally, I've been told that the live show from two days ago was one for the ages. Lots of good topics. For example, I reveal some issues I encounter behind the scenes when guests want to come on the program and others <clears throat> don't want them to. So check it out. The live show plays every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Unfound Facebook page. And please keep tuned in all the way to the end of this episode when you get to hear me talk to Stephen Huba about his Sunday article about the disappearance of Donnie Smatlack at TribLive.com, where you can find Unfound. Unfound is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Podomatic, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. You can email the program, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. The website, unfoundpodcast.com. Today, you are hearing the secret Stephen Kocher episode. The website at Trib Total Media, triblive.com forward slash news forward slash unfound. Unfound has Patreon and PayPal accounts. Your contributions provide for many of the items Unfound has been able to give to guests so far. This week, I need to thank Susie and Sherry. Unfound Merchandise, Volumes 1, 2, 3, and 4 on Amazon in both paperback and ebook form. Let's get some nice reviews for those books. What do you say? The Playing Cards at MakePlayingCards.com. Just do a search for Unfound Podcast. And search for almost all of Unfound's cases at MyShopify.com. And please, mention Unfound on all True Crime Facebook pages and other websites and forums. Thank you. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So how did this all get started? I can tell you, at the time, I was living on South Maryland Parkway, right off South Maryland Parkway, on a little street called Raggedy Ann Drive. Yes, really. I lived there from sometime in 2008 until... Sometime in 2010, I'm going to say April 2010. And if you do go to Google Maps, you're going to find that the distance from Raggedy Ann Drive to the spot where Stephen Kocher disappeared on Evening Lights Drive is about seven miles. I can tell you, I drove that, those roads back and forth many times back then, and it seems a lot closer than that. Maybe it's because... There's hardly any lights. There's just a couple stop signs. And you don't have to go through like downtown Las Vegas to get there. And just it seemed like a lot closer. I tell people today it was like a couple miles away. But then when I Google it, it's like seven miles. And I think, man, it seemed like a lot closer than that. But still not very far away. And really, I remember that week. That I remember, I don't necessarily remember that Sunday, but I do remember that week that it happened because being that it's, it was NFL season, the NFL season when this happened, my Pittsburgh Steelers, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I'm originally from the Pittsburgh area, they had lost that preceding Thursday night. They were the Thursday night game that week. They lost to the Cleveland Browns. In Cleveland, one of the rare occasions where they lost to the Browns. They played it in Cleveland. The, the, the temperature was like zero or something like that. And they lost to the Browns. That happened three days before Steven disappeared. I remember watching that game. To this day, I remember watching that game. Mainly because the Steelers lost to the Browns. So it was only three days after that. So when I start thinking about where I was in my life at the time... That's how I equate it. I don't remember the Sunday that Stephen disappeared. However, I will tell you this. Had it been a Sunday, and the Steelers had been playing regularly on that Sunday, December 12th, that I would have been at a Steelers bar that is not very far away from where Stephen disappeared. Now, it really was close, a couple miles, two or three miles away from where Stephen disappeared. So... That kind of puts you kind of in a geographical mindset as to how close I lived. I lived seven miles away, but had I been doing what I regularly do during the NFL season, I would have only been about two or three miles away. I remember the story. I remember it popping up in the news sometime late in December 2009 and took an interest in it. Read a little bit about it, but then when I figured out where it was, went on WebSleuths, and I had been going on WebSleuths for quite a long time before then, had made some comments here and there, but this was going to be the first time 
that I got involved in the case and kept going back to the thread over and over and over again. And you can go back and check this because I did in putting the information together for this show. My first comment on the disappearance of Stephen Kocher happened on January 11th, 2010. It happened on thread number one. It was post 129. And if you want to know, the Stephen Kocher thread on WebSleuths is now on thread number 22. It's a very popular case there where people still talk about it to, to this day. Uh, at that point, being, of course, 129th to comment, there was already a decent discussion going on, as I remember. And really, there were already a couple people putting together information that I hadn't read anywhere, hadn't heard the police talk about it, hadn't seen it in the news, hadn't seen it on the Las Vegas Review Journal website. So already there were regular people like myself, like all of you out there, and I still consider myself to be a regular person regarding all this true crime um, stuff. But there was already a decent discussion going on and trying to put together what Stephen was doing in Las Vegas and There was already at least one person there who kind of knew Stephen or knew the family who was trying to fill in uh, the blanks. And the discussions were going very, very quickly. And once again, if you go back and check those that check that first thread, you're going to see what I mean. Before I commented that first time, I had watched the two videos that you can still find on YouTube of Stephen, one on this kind of the side of the house where he's walking away from the camera, and then the second one where he kind of passes in front of the camera. I must have watched those videos, well, many times before I commented, but over the years I've probably watched those videos, I don't know, 500 times, maybe 250 times each, something like that. But I remember watching it several times before writing my first comment there. And I I looked at my first comment. It was very long, and that's just kind of how uh, I typed there, how I posted comments in very long, kind of almost a stream of conscience, stream of conscious uh, type of situation when I was commenting there. And I think one of, I don't remember if I put it in that first post, But I remember thinking and remember typing that for some reason, because I was slowly, slowly learning information about Stephen, once again from other people who were commenting and and also from the news that was out there, that the whole thing felt like a setup. I remember that having one of my first thoughts about this case, and I made the comment to that effect on there. And at the time, I think I referenced the show To Catch a Predator, which had been on, what was it, MSNBC with Chris Hansen, a show that was very popular back then. It seems like yesterday that that show was on, but it's been several years now. And I said, it kind of feels like that. And if you remember that show, they would trap guys who were going onto the internet to have sex with underage girls they'd show up at a house chris hansen would walk into the kitchen and the guy would try to escape and the police were there this is kind of what it felt like 
watching Steven on that camera in that neighborhood because you have to know something about where he disappeared, the Anthem neighborhood. It's one of the nicer areas of Henderson slash Las Vegas. It's an age-restricted community. There's not any, not in this little community anyway, no gates or anything, but you're not going to find too many little kids running around in the streets with their bikes or anything like that in this area. That's what also made this disappearance so odd. If he would have disappeared down on Boston Avenue in Las Vegas, well, that's no surprise. If he would have disappeared in some areas of North Las Vegas, no surprise. Anthem, probably the least likely place to disappear in Las Vegas. So I had gone up there uh, on my own before people even knew that I was from Las Vegas and had driven the street, looked at where his car had been parked, stood there and looked at both of those cameras that, was, that were on the outside of that particular house. And somehow I learned one way or the other that the people who lived, the guy who lived in that house was a retired cop. Somehow that was information that got, got out. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was the belief. And so I just kind of cruised around the neighborhood, looking at some of the houses. You, know, you just don't know what you're going to get out of that. But just to get a sense of a feel of what was going on there. And more and more I did that, the more I f- continued to feel that this was some type of setup. That Because at the time I was learning that Stephen had only been, I think, to Las Vegas once before. There was no records of him ever being in that area before. He was originally from Salt Lake City, but he was living in St. George. And he had kind of been a guy that was down on his luck. So what's he doing? And you have to understand something. He's coming from Utah, and Anthem is on the opposite side of Las Vegas that Utah is. So he went down through North Las Vegas, down the 15, right by the Strip, got off at whatever exit, and had to make his way to the whole other side of the city to get to Anthem. It wasn't like he just got to the edge of town and parked his car in some neighborhood. He went to the far side of the town uh, to get to the Anthem neighborhood, which continues to stick out to me uh, to this day. Uh, But over and over again, I watched uh, the videos many times. Then at some point... I must have mentioned that I'm from Las Vegas. Maybe it's even in my bio there that pops up every time you post. And people started asking me questions, and that's when they started, could you go up there and check this out? Because there were some people on WebSleuths, because you can't do this, because the suspicion at the time was that one of the residents in one of those houses had something to do with Stephen's disappearance. A perfectly logical thought. And people, I think, were going to sites like Zillow or some of these real estate uh, where it's public information that you can go back and see the people who lived at this address, the next address, the next address. And some people were doing that. I have never done that. But I know others were. That's That's how amateur sleuths act, right? And maybe some of you have even done that. That they find out a name and then they maybe go try to find out 
if the person has a felony record, and people were doing that. Once again, that was not something I took part in. But what I remember at the time, that very quickly there was a person who established, I, th- I think she's a, I think it was a woman. Her name was Laytonian. You can see her in the comments section on that n- thread uh, number one, and you'll notice uh, she and I also had some private conversations back and forth at the time. But she quickly established herself as kind of the head person there. Not that she, she was, what she was doing is she was accumulating information. And she was doing that from Facebook, what people, what friends of Stevens were now saying now that he was gone. And if you ever see that timeline, and I'm not going to go through that timeline step by step on this episode of Unfound, you can do that for yourselves. It was Laytonian who put that list together. If you've ever seen it, if you've ever taken an interest in the case, where all of these very detailed uh, times and dates and where Stephen was and how many miles he drove from here to there, all this driving that he did in the weeks before he disappeared, it was this person, Laytonian, who did it. Well, I was there. I wasn't. don't know how much I really helped with that, but I was there as – she was compiling all of this information, and it was very interesting. She was very orderly about it, uh, very dedicated, and I never met her in person. I don't even know her real name. I have no idea what her real name is. I'm going to guess she, she knew what mine is because my name is actually in my username for WebSluice. But she was putting this, all this information together. And so anything that the average person knows about where Stephen was going these preceding weeks before he disappeared is because of Laytonian and these other people who accumulated all that information. It's not because of the police. It's not because of the family. It's because of what went on, like I said, starting in January sometime of 2010. And I'm going to link, for those of you who aren't familiar with the disappearance of Stephen Kocher. I'm going to link to that uh, for this episode so you can take a look at it for yourself. But it was amazing how these people were able to go out and find a friend who said, well, I remember seeing Stephen at this day, and they were doing inquiries and because Stephen had a Facebook page and finding friends of his who had seen him in the preceding, anybody that had talked to him, and it was crowdsourcing. That's why to this day... I'm convinced that crowdsourcing, giving the information to citizens out there, is a very viable way to solve cases. Not just missing persons cases, but murder cases, all sorts of cases. Um, And because if she hadn't done that, if these people hadn't done that, I don't know if anybody would know where Stephen was going those weeks before. Because I do believe that his disappearance is connected to all of this, what I would call, crazy driving he was doing in the weeks before. Because I know that area very well. I had a brother who lived in Utah when I moved to Las Vegas. I had a job where I had to go up into southern Utah, up to Cedar City, up to St. George, uh, up to Mesquite, which is technically still in Nevada, or, but it's very close to Utah. I know that area well. You're driving out in the middle of nowhere for most of the time. For you East Coasters, you maybe don't appreciate that. 
But for anybody who listens to this show, lives in the Western United States, or if you live in Australia in the outback, that's kind of what it's like driving out in the Western United States. Many, many miles where you don't pass any cars. This is the area that Stephen was driving around in. A lot of people asking, well, what was he doing out there? Especially since didn't seem he had like much of a job, didn't seem to have a lot of money. Well, we're going to get into that uh, in a bit. What I did, kind of my role once again, was I was the Las Vegas guy. Of all the people on Web Sleuths who were commenting on the case, I was the person who lived the closest. So I actually went up there, parked my car right where Stephen parked his car, walked where he walked, kind of just walked around in that area, just eyeing things up. You know, you never know what you're, you know, you're going to run into. You just kind of get a feel for the place. So, you know, what I would say, and I have this in my notes, Anthem is not a place where fake rich people would live. And what I mean by that, people who you know, or living there, using all their credit cards, things like that. This is, it seems to me to be a place where people who live there live there because they've taken care of their finances in life, okay? It's not a really flashy community. You look at the houses uh, in that area, they aren't flashy houses. They're nice houses, very nice houses by uh, Las Vegas standards, uh, and I don't even know, you know, of course, right now, you know, in 2009 at the time, we're just coming back from the real estate disaster. I'm not sure what their values were, but I could see probably at the height of the, the, the real estate boom in 2005 into 2006 before everything crashed, those houses might have been $400,000, maybe. Maybe more than that. Very possible. Once again, just to give you... An idea. This would not be a place where drug dealers would live. It would not be a place where people with suspicious income would live. Uh, however, to this day, I'm still not sure why that guy had those video cameras on the outside of his house. I don't know. I don't know the guy. Maybe he's overtly paranoid. I have no idea because as far as crime is concerned, there's not a lot of crime that's committed in that area. And you can, at least at the time, you could check out the crimes that had been committed in that area, like in the months before Stephen disappeared. Not many. Not many. And certainly no disappearances. So back to Web Sleuths. As I said, users were trying to figure out who lived in each house. And they were, they were a little successful in doing that. Uh, but nothing really stick out. However, uh, there was a rumor nothing that was ever proven, that somebody might have been renting out one of the houses. So you might get the rent, the, the owner's name on the house, but the owner's not living there. The owner lives somewhere else in town, lives in another city, and there was a renter. So you're not going to be able to ever know the renter's name. You're just going to know the owner's name. That was a rumor that was out there. However, my question was that I don't even know if you're allowed to do that. If an owner was doing that in Anthem – in that area, they were probably doing it under the table because the HOA laws in Las Vegas, especially in the nice areas, are pretty, pretty strict regarding rentals and who you can rent to if you're not going to live there, how long the person has to live there, and everything has to be well documented. 
HOAs in Las Vegas in the nice areas, very, very strict. However, I will tell you that at one point, what they were doing, and, and I guess this person didn't like me either. At some point, I'm not sure what thread it was, maybe in thread number two. Um, somebody who lived on that street got ticked off of what was going on and commented. And the comment was there for about an hour, and then it was deleted. And I have actually have that statement saved on one of my old one of the old computers I was using. I've gone through two laptops, I think, since then, and and one Mac Mini since then. So it's on one of my old computers, and I'm sure I could find it if I looked. Where this person came on there, and we all took for granted it was somebody once again who lived on the Evening Lights Lights Street, Evening Lights Drive, who went after all of us, including me. In fact, what the person said to me was, you know, you seem to know so much about that area. How do we know you're not the one who made Stephen disappear? And this person went after Laytonian and all of these other people who were commenting at the time. And really, I mean, really, really going out. I don't remember any F-bombs or anything like that. What I remember about it, being a writer myself, is how well it was written. Whoever wrote it, very, very educated, which once again would fall in line with the type of people who live in the Anthem area. Some people took it to mean that, that you know we were hot on the trail of whoever made Steven disappear. Me, I never took it that way. I, I was never sh- quite sure of that. It just seemed to me somebody who didn't like all of the attention that that street was getting. Once again, kind of motivated by me because I was the one who spent more time up there on that street than anybody else. However, I will tell you, nobody ever came out of their house uh, while I was there and confronted me. That never happened. But I think we got under somebody's skin. But like I said, I think it was the administrator on Web Sluice who eventually... Um, deleted that comment for whatever reason. but And I forget even what the user's name was. It was I think that that user only ever commented once on WebSluice, and that was it. Like I said, I have it saved probably on my old laptop, and I'd have to go uh, dig that out. So regarding that timeline that Laytonian and these other people put together, I'm not sure at what point it was all completed. What Was it completed in February? Was it completed in March? I don't remember that. All I know is looking at that list every day that, that she was doing and just one little more piece of information would be there. We heard this. We heard that. In just one sentence at a time over the course of many months, it became what you now can see today if you'd ever do a search for the timeline for Stephen Kocher's disappearance. It was an ongoing thing, and I, I could tell you that I had many talks with Laytonian about it. Other people, I'm sure, had many talks with her regarding uh, how she put that together and what did we all make out of this information uh, that she was putting together because it was truly bizarre. Some of the weirdest driving habits I've ever seen or heard about. 
and I had and I have two brothers who used to be truck drivers. So you can uh, you know take that into account. The belief at the time was that Stephen was in Las Vegas looking for work. At the time, he was going around washing windows, I guess, in St. He was getting hired to wash people's windows in their houses in St. George, and he was putting flyers out there. And the possibilities, and it's a perfectly reasonable one to think, at least at the time, that he was in Las Vegas about a job. Very possible. Now, what house he was he going to? Still nobody knows. What could the job have been about? Nobody knows. But being that he was in a nice neighborhood, the thought was, well, you know, nice people with nice houses like to keep their nice windows clean. And maybe Stephen talked to somebody who said, you know what? I have a friend who lives in Las Vegas in the Anthem area. Maybe they could help you out getting a job down there if this is what you do. It's possible, but that's never been proven. And once again, I will post uh, the the driving schedule uh, for all of you, at least the link to it. But here's where things, I think, start to get uh, very interesting, and these are some things that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Um, first of all, Stephen never told anybody that he was going to Las Vegas. He had an opportunity to do that at least twice that Sunday morning. He had talked to two different people. The funny thing to me about all of it is that these were two people that Stephen knew. I wouldn't necessarily call them close friends, but he told both of them that he was in Las Vegas, and neither one of them asked them asked him, well, what are you doing there? Because usually on Sundays, Stephen was going to church. But here on this particular Sunday, he's in Las Vegas, and allegedly neither of these people ever asked. Maybe they're just trying to mind their own business. Maybe. But I have to tell you that if I'm talking to somebody and they tell me, you know, and I find out they're in a place that you know, I wouldn't expect, I might say to them, in Vegas, what are you doing down there? I might not get a truthful answer. And the person might say, well, you, I really don't want to say anything. These people who talked to him allegedly never asked him. Now, something that you may not know, and the only reason I know this, is because I actually got to see S- Stephen's cell phone records. And I don't mean the numbers of the calls that he was making. I actually got to see the cell phone towers and the, the actual printout of the cell phone towers, his phone was bouncing off from the time that he left Utah until that Monday morning when his phone, the day after his disappearance, or the, the documented day of his disappearance, or the day after which would have been Monday morning. I got to see all of that information. Now, how did I get to do that? Somehow, there was a guy who was commenting on who jumped in would jump in once in a while um, on Web Sluice. Don't remember his name. He worked at Channel 8 in Las Vegas. Somehow he had the records and he found out that I lived in Las Vegas and I said, well, I'd love to see him. He says, sure, come on down to the station. So I drove to the Channel 8 uh, station 
which is right there by Desert Inn. And I, once again, to this day, I have no idea how he got them. I have no idea. And this is the only time in my life where I got to see information like this. Now, the first thing that popped up to me, popped out to me, was a very, very strange coincidence that I'm, I'm guessing it's a coincidence, but it's still very strange. You have to remember, on that morning, Stephen was driving into Las Vegas, so he is going south. Well, this other guy who was talking to him just happened to be in Las Vegas at the same time, but he was heading to Utah. So Stephen is going south. He's up kind of north of town on the 15, going south toward Las Vegas. This other guy is going north, leaving Las Vegas that Sunday morning. They're talking to each other on their cell phones, and their cell phones are bouncing off the same exact tower. Meaning they virtually, I guess past each other on the highway, one going south, one going north, and seemingly, at least to believe the guy who took part in the conversation, we can't ask Stephen because he disappeared, he didn't even realize that Stephen was passing, going the opposite direction, going toward Las Vegas. He heard that Stephen said he was in Las Vegas, which makes it even weirder that this guy said, oh, you're in Las Vegas? Well, I'm in Las Vegas. Where are you? Allegedly, that never popped up in the conversation, but because of the cell phone records that were gotten, they were both their phones were bouncing, bouncing off the same tower at the same time. And as I remember it, it was a tower that's in North Las Vegas, and there is a jail up there, and there's a cell phone tower that's very close to this jail. That's the cell phone tower. And I went up and found that cell phone tower. In fact, I went and found it every cell phone tower in Las Vegas that Stephen's phone bounced off of over the course. I, I, I don't know if I did that in a day or a few days, but I did that. I went up to North Las Vegas and found that cell phone tower. Very, very strange. I got to tell you, that's a heck of a coincidence. So a lot of this, a lot of these phone calls are known, but in seeing the records the phone call that sticks out to me, and I have to tell you, on this, I don't know, is this a spreadsheet? I don't even know what you'd call it. In seeing this piece of information, it was, it must have been three or four pages. There was a cell, There was a phone call that was unlike the others, in that with the rest of the phone calls that Stephen made or people called him, you could see the information was very easy to read. On this one particular phone call that happened on Saturday night, it was just a little bit different. And that's the only way that I can – even if I had the, the, the sheet in front of me, I might have a hard time explaining. Because when you look at cell phone tower information, each cell phone tower has a name. Now, the company who has them – may have a number, but on you look at the cell phone uh, sheets, it'll have a name, and it usually has to do with a road, some road, whether it's in Las Vegas or wherever else. This particular call did not have that. 
and it's the and it's a call that I think Stephen received while he was shopping up in St. George the night before, the night when he got that Christmas stuff that ended up being found in his car. That call was different than all the ones before it and all the other ones after it. And that's I'm, – I'm sorry. I wish I could be more specific in that, and I'm sorry it's been, what, over seven – it's like seven years now. But I just remember that sticking out, that, that particular phone call in this spreadsheet, the way – the computer saved the information was different than the others. Now, what's interesting about that is I'm not sure that any person has ever been connected to that call. All the other calls, they figured out who the call was from or who Stephen was calling. This particular phone call, it's unknown. I have a suspicion, and we'll get to that later. So we ha- I saw all this cell phone information. Once again, I have no idea how this guy from Channel 8 got it. Um, The big question, and I have this written in my notes in the cell phone section, the big question is, Stephen told all of the people that he talked to that Sunday morning that he was in Las Vegas. He wasn't hiding it. He could have easily hid it. Could have said he was sick. Could have said that uh, he was doing this, he was doing that. But he told them the truth that he was in Las Vegas, which meant to me, at least, that he was down there for a legitimate reason, even though he didn't tell them what it was, and allegedly they didn't ask. He didn't lie about where he was. He could have easily done that, but he didn't. What's also surprising to me, it doesn't seem like the people who talked to him were that surprised he was there. That's weird. And nobody asked him what he was doing there on a Sunday, when he was usually in church. That's what sticks out to me, what I remember about seeing those records. And once again, we'll come back to the cell phone stuff uh, at some point because that jail, uh, with the jail and the cell phone tower being right there, that's going to pop up. And there was the time that that call happened was very interesting to me as well. And once again, we'll get to that in a moment. Now, regarding the search, in April of 2010, I took part in a search. Although I should say before that, I went to a press conference that was held at the Henderson government building. I went down there and parked and was standing there. The family was there. Stephen's siblings were there, and they read off a statement. And, of course, they had a flyer that they were holding up. I'm thinking that that was February of 2010. So I I saw that. The cops were there. And what I remember about that is one of the cops, it looked like a detective because he didn't have a uniform on, just had the, the suit and tie, but he had his gun. He wasn't even watching the people speaking. He was actually watching the crowd that was there which always sticks out to me to this day. He was eyeing the crowd. And I'm not, there weren't a ton of people there, but I remember him eyeing me up and all these other people. Maybe he's suspecting that somebody might have made Stephen disappear, might have shown up for it. But I can tell you, he was eyeing the crowd. That's something that I will remember always. But in April 2010, I took part in a search. And at that point, I got to meet 
a few other Las Vegas people that I had talked to online who had also t- started to take an interest in the case. And by that time, I had been on Web Sleuths for four months talking about this case, and some Las Vegas people were getting involved in it. And I got to meet some of them in person. Well, I forget how many people showed up. I can't remember. But um, the search was organized right beside the uh, Henderson Executive Airport. And for me to get there, all I had to do was jump in my car, go out into South Maryland Parkway, go south on there, get out of there. Did I make a left or a right? I forget. To, you have to make a right to get to where Stephen disappeared, but I think you had to make a left to go to the area where the search was taking place. That's kind of how I remember it. But the search was right beside the airport. In fact, the area we were searching was right in line with the runway. So while we were searching, one or two of these – it wasn't McCarran Airport with the 737s, the commercial airlines, but – Henderson Executive Airport is for private aircraft, some private jets, private propeller planes. And so while we're doing this search, once in a while there'd be a, you know, a small plane or jet you know, that would fly overhead. It was right in line. We were searching right in line with that runway. And so we ended up going into sections, to each of us taking a section and just going straight from St. Rose Parkway south into the desert. Walking, walking, walking. And I can remember it kind of wasn't a hot day. It was kind of overcast. It was actually very pleasant out that day. And it didn't rain. I, I just remember having like jeans and a t-shirt on. And we all went out. I don't know how far we went. Maybe a quarter mile. And then we all came back very slowly, slowly, slowly looking for stuff in the desert. Got out to a certain point. Turned around came back. Uh, it was during this day that I got to meet Stephen's parents. Now, you should know that his father has died since then. I think he died in 2012, 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. But the family was there. I don't know. I don't remember if they were taking part in the search or not, but they were definitely there. The cops were there. Our reporters were there. And I really can't remember how many hours it took us to go out there and back. I just, I just, it's just been too long. But we weren't exactly going real, real, real slow. But of course, we weren't going fast either because you uh, uh, might miss something. But got to meet his parents and nice people, of course. And they they thanked everybody for showing up. However, at that no time. Before then, during that search or afterwards, did any of us know why we were there? We don't know what the tip was or anything else. All I will tell you is that it was kind of organized by uh, this private investigator who I believe at the time was being paid by the coachers. They had gotten a private investigator to get involved with Stephen's disappearance. And here's what I'm going to tell you about this guy. I don't remember his name. I don't remember the name of his agency, anything. But just meeting him, seeing how he was conducting his business while this was going on, very shady guy. To me, he didn't look like he knew what he was doing at all. 
Uh, I remember back at the time he had a website and going to it. It just did not feel professional at all. Not that I have known a lot, a ton of private investigators in my life, but did not he didn't feel professional to me. And I really was left wondering, and I and maybe you, I don't even know if we talked about that on Web Sluice later. Maybe we did. You'd have to go to the threads back to around that time of April into May of 2010. But uh, I wasn't the only one who expressed that opinion of those other people who were there. It just seemed a little strange. Uh, I, I just to this day I don't think he knew what he was doing. I. I I just think that he was taking the coacher's money. My impression. You should know, since I left Las Vegas in September of 2011, there's been at least one search in the desert since then, but not near there. I think that they were up in the Red Rock area, which is well outside of Las Vegas, I think. Maybe there's been another one besides that. I do not believe that there were any more searches between... That one in April 2010, and when I left Las Vegas like a year and a half later, I do not believe that there were any then. But like I said, there's at least one that has happened since I moved to Florida. I have to tell you, just I really had I really had doubts we were ever going to find anything there. Uh, I, I had my doubts. Uh, I'm not saying that dead people aren't found in the desert in Las Vegas. Sometimes they are. Dehydration, suicide, yes, murder, people get murdered and they're buried outside of Las Vegas. And being a mob town, I'm sure there's still some criminals who are buried out, outside of Las Vegas that have never been found. But I never really, when I was out there, I wanted to take part. I wanted to see what went on. But I can tell you, I never really thought any, we were going to find anything. Just my impression all these years later. Now, the video, this video that was taken of Stephen that day that he disappeared. Let's get back to that for a moment. You need to know something. I don't know how much this information is out there. There are people who believe that that is not Stephen in that video. I know that sounds crazy, but I will tell you, that, um, and if I'll just say this, I think I can say this now all these years later, Laytonian, the person who put that list together of him driving all over the place, Laytonian had some doubts whether that was Stephen or not. Uh, and the family, of course, watched the video and said it was him. Other people who knew Stephen personally watched the video and we're less sure whether that's really, really public uh, material, public information that everybody knows now. I'm not sure, but I thought all of you uh, should know that. I happen to believe it is him, but I didn't know Stephen personally. I've never seen another video with him in it walking to try to compare his gait in you know in a, a video where it's surely him compared to a video where you can't kind of see his face and the video is in black and white and then it has a weird lens on it uh, I really 
d- couldn't couldn't do that. But you should know that. Some things that stuck out to me in in being involved, going up there, uh, seeing Evening Lights uh, Road or Drive or whatever it's called. Things that always stuck out to me. This is the section, things that stuck out to me. I'm always to this day wondering where the directions were. How did Stephen know to get to that uh, street and to park there? Because to my knowledge, no directions were found in his car. Also, Stephen did not have... Of course, iPhones came out, what, 2007? But he didn't have an iPhone. I don't believe he had an Android phone. There was no GPS in his, in, in his car that anybody ever talked about. So, you know, back before the days of GPS or a, a, an app like Waze, if you've ever used that, I have that on my phone, W-A-Z-E, great GPS uh, app. The way you get somewhere is you write the directions down. If somebody wants you to go to Evening Lights down in Henderson, Nevada, in the Anthem area of Nevada, then you know the person's not. You know you're never going to remember the ad, You know the directions. Well, you got to go south on the 15, and then you have to make a left here, and then you make a right here, and you go down here. Nobody's going to remember that, and you know unless you know um, you're a genius or you just are really really good with directions. I don't think Stephen was that way. I think that like most people. He'd need the directions written. Those directions were never found. Now, they might have been on his phone. He could have had his phone out. Somebody texted in the directions. That is a lot of texting. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but that's a lot of texting. To Remember, it wouldn't just be go to this address because an address is irrelevant if you don't have some sort of GPS system, it's like we have to get it thinking back to the pre-GPS days of, I want to drive from here to Pennsylvania, some random address in Pennsylvania, and I can't go to the internet. I'm going to have to get on and get a map and write down the directions and follow them. No directions were ever found in this car. Maybe he took them with him when he got out out of the car. That seems a little strange to me. And I have to tell you, because of all of this, it gets me wondering, were the directions not in the car because Stephen had been to that street before? I'm totally open, even though I know that people say, well, he was only to Las Vegas once before and he didn't drive there and was nowhere near Anthem. Well, he was driving around a lot. Who knows what the heck he was doing? Who knows who, where the heck he had been in the preceding year? Maybe he had been there before. Or the other possibility I'm open to is that somebody went out after, you know, after he disappears off the camera sometime later, somebody went to the car and took stuff out of the car, including the directions. Unfortunately, we have no proof of that. You know, and that's another thing that drives me nuts about seeing those the security videos. I'd like to, you know, it just shows him walking. I'd like to see what at least one of those cameras shows five minutes later. 
10 minutes. Is there a car that leaves, that comes out from the side of the camera from where, where Steven is walking? That would be interesting to me in the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Because I'm, I've convinced myself that he was down there to meet somebody. And I look at the clock in, what is it, noon uh, Pacific time. And I say, maybe he's meeting somewhere in that, someone in that neighborhood at noon, which is not an original thought. A lot of people have said that. Well, if that's the case, then either he went into one of those houses or somebody met him outside and he got in somebody else's car and they left. Once again, given what I know about that neighborhood, to leave that neighborhood, the car would have to go by those cameras again. Unfortunately, I don't know if that video has ever been released to anybody. I'm sure the police saw it. But to my knowledge, the family's never seen it or anybody else. That would be very interesting to know. But no uh, written directions. The other thing that you have to understand, and this is something that I, I just have to be honest with you. Anybody who tells you, well, he got out of his car and walked away from his life, that's totally crazy. And here's the reason. Not because I know Stephen personally. I didn't. Never, never met him. Didn't even know about him until he disappeared. If he was walking away from his life and made that corner and went down that street, he's going the wrong direction. If he was really meaning to leave all his stuff there and, like, get away... He should have backed, walked back the way he came. In the first video, you see him in his car, his white car, coming down that street. Well, if he was walking to get away, if he was planning on walking and then – I mean I listened to one podcast where they said, well, he could have walked the whole way down to where his phone pinged later down by Sunset Station in Henderson. I'll get into that in a second. Well, if he was going to do – if he really did do that – the direction he's going in that video is the wrong way because what happens is that evening lights kind of wraps around. It's the long way to get back to the main road. Now, why would he do that? That makes no sense whatsoever. And even if he was going to cut between houses, if he's going that direction, there's a golf course over there. So he would have gone behind these, you know, in Las Vegas, if you've never been, been there, every community's, you know, surrounded by walls and fences. He'd probably have to cut between the houses and jump over a wall, then walk across this golf course. Or so. It's just not believable. And plus, it's Sunday in Las Vegas. Like 10 or 15 golfers are going to see some random guy walking across their fairway. It's just not possible. So if the idea is that well, he parked his car and he wanted to leave his life and he wanted to walk down to Henderson, well, down to Sensitive Station, what he should have done is just gone back up the street. He should have gone up the way that he came down. Now, having said that, there is no way that Stephen walked from where he parked the whole way down to Henderson, where his phone ended up pinging later in the day. I'm telling you, I was a Las Vegas and Henderson resident for 13 and a half years. I lived, of course, near where Stephen disappeared. I lived at one point on East Tropicana, which is like seven minutes 
from Sunset Station. I've been all over that area many, many hundreds of times. There is no way somebody would walk from Anthem down to Sunset Station. No way. Just no way. So I am. that's why I'm convinced that he got a ride down there. How did he get a ride? Probably from somebody that he met in that neighborhood. I, once again, if you've ever heard anybody talk about this case and talk about walking in Las Vegas, Las Vegas is like L.A. And there was that old missing person song, no, Nobody Walks in L.A. You know what? Nobody walk, walks in Las Vegas either. All right. So just got to remember that. Now let's get to some rumors that were out there, some that were explored, and uh, just some, some of my thoughts about them. Once again, being that I was there and I've gotten to, I got to talk to a lot of people about, about these at the time and being there and really exploring all the possibilities. The first one, I, I, you know, I think I need to dispel that he ran off with Susan Powell. That gained a lot of traction because she disappeared uh, around the same time. I think that rumor was dispelled the moment that, what was his name? I even forget his name now. But her husband took their kids and burnt their house down. That was about the time I think that that rumor died. Now that happened after Stephen disappeared. It happened, I forget what year was, but after uh, we got into... Uh, studying Stephen's disappearance. But that alone, I think, says that Stephen Kocher and Susan Powell did not run off together uh, as lovers. There's no proof they've ever met. Yes, they both lived in Utah. Yes, they were both Mormon. Yes, 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 yes. But there's no, there's no proof they knew each other at all. No one anywhere, anybody has ever uh, said that. Any of Stephen's friends or any of Susan's friends or family for that reason. But I think that theory was put to bed when her husband, his her evil, evil husband, uh, took those kids from that social worker that day that that happened and locked the door and burnt the house down. Stephen ran off by himself. I doubt this one too. Uh, what kept coming up during these discussions and some of the people who knew Stephen – is that they portray him as being not the most worldly guy, nice guy, kind guy, friendly guy, but not the kind of guy you would think who could successfully disappear out into the world and change his name and change his appearance. Wasn't very street-wise. Uh, they portrayed him as being a little bit of socially backward, um, had no money, his passport, although at the time it was believed it was gone, they eventually ended up finding it later at his apartment up in St. George. I once again bring up the direction that he's walking in the video. If he's walking to catch a bus or something, uh, he's going the wrong direction. And I think that that's something he would uh, check out before he decided to leave his life. I mean, really, if he wanted to leave his life, you know what he should have done? He should have just parked at one of the casinos and left. Granted, there are cameras there, but his car wouldn't have been found for months. I mean, his car was found in two days. It sat there two days, and then, you know, that's how this whole thing got started. He could have had his car parked in a, in a 
casino for months and nobody would have known. So why not just do that if you really wanted to disappear? You know, so that's always what sticks with me as well. There's also the rumor, well, he ran off because he was gay. That was something that, you, once again, you can go to the Web Sleuth forum uh, and check that out. I know a lot of you aren't fans of Web Sleuth because it's a little hard to follow. The threads get really, really long, and some people putting comments on there, and you can tell they haven't read the thread at all. And I don't go to Web Sleuth that much anymore myself. But if you go back to around that time, thread number one, thread number two, thread number three for Stephen Kocher, the topic of him being gay pops up and being gay and Mormonism isn't considered to be a good thing and it's a sin. There's no proof to me that he's gay. Uh, It seemed to me that he was very interested in the opposite sex, not the same sex. And so I completely dismissed that as well. And we had long talks about that. Next, he was doing business in that neighborhood. Now, see, I think when you get to that rumor that we talked about, I think we're getting closer to the fact. To the fact, I personally believe that he thought he was going down there for a job. Getting back to one of my first comments, my thoughts about Stephen Kocher at the time, was that it looked like he was lured down there. And luring is a topic that comes up on Unfound quite often. You know, Jeff Nichols, for example. Uh, maybe even Rebecca Gary, maybe in her case as well. But he might have been led to believe he was going down there for a job, but really it was something else. What I notice in that video, if it is him, he's not carrying any flyers. And he's really not dressed. I don't know if I don't know if he owned a suit or anything like that. But if it he was going for a job, but it really really wasn't a, an official job because he wasn't once again wasn't wearing a suit, wasn't very drop, uh, dressed up. But I do think that that's how somebody got him to go down there. Uh, but if he was doing business down there just on his own. Nobody could ever find anybody to talk to him on that street. He didn't knock on any doors. As you can watch on the video, he passes the very house that he parks next to. I mean, if he's going from door to door looking for business, he should have stopped at that first house where the video cameras were. Didn't do that. So if he was down there for a job, It was, I think, more for an interview for a job, not actually to do the job that he had been doing in the weeks before he disappeared. Some people thought that he might have got on in a plane at the executive airport. It's not that kind of airport. It's not McCarran Airport where he paid for a ticket, jumped on a 737, and flew from Las Vegas to Houston. Executive Airport is a small, tiny Cessnas for private owners and then business jets. Now, if he jumped on a business jet with somebody, then, okay, maybe he's like a super spy now. But that's a weird place to park. And once again, it has to once again go back to 
If he's going to that airport, if he's walking to that airport, he's going the wrong direction. He's taking the hard, 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 hard way to get there. Now, why would he do that? If he wanted to get to the airport, probably he's walking that direction because somebody's giving him a ride. Well, once again, we get back to who gave him that ride. I just don't think that he ended up at the Henderson Executive Airport. And some people have also brought up his former roommate, who was a shady character. But to my knowledge, we determined at the time that the roommate had an alibi, and it put him nowhere near Las Vegas. Although, once again, get the idea that the roommate was a little shady. I don't specifically remember. I might have had something to do with drugs or might have had a couple misdemeanors or something like that, but I don't remember it being anything violent or, or anything like that. So, what did happen to Stephen Kocher? Remember I talked about that phone call that he got the night before while he was shopping. And then the facts are that later he was seen back at his apartment before then jumping on the highway and then the next morning ending, ending up in Las Vegas. You need to know something about Stephen's landlord in St. George. And once again, I don't know. You might, you're going to find this in the web sleuth thread if you want to go through all 22 threads. But I don't know how many shows have really covered this. I know the Disappeared episode didn't. Stephen's landlord is now in jail. And has actually been in jail for a few years. I wish I could tell you his name, but I forget it. All I could figure out, and the only reason I know this, is from the research that was done back at the time that his initials are D as in dog, H as in Harry. D.H. was the landlord's name. Ended up he was a pretty bad guy. Uh, It turns out that he was dealing in prescription drugs. Uh, There was a stolen car on the same property where Stephen was living. You know, this apartment that he was renting from this guy. And uh, he ended up going to jail later. I forget what year, 2012, 2013, something like that. And to me, this is the best uh, lead in the case of the disappearance of Stephen Kocher. Here's what I think was going on. This is the way my mind works. And once again, just what I think I figured out after all the talks that I had back then, everything I remember, all the information being put together, me knowing some things that most other people didn't. I put together all that driving that he was doing in the weeks before he disappeared, Combined with that phone call the night before, combined with after that phone call, he ends up back at his apartment, and then the next morning he is in Las Vegas. I think that Stephen Kocher was working for his landlord doing something illegal. I'm not here to trash Stephen Kocher's name. But to this day, nobody has been able to figure out why he was doing all that driving, especially for a guy who allegedly had no money. Somewhere he was getting money to pay for gas. Somewhere. But he was, I mean, all over it. I mean, these empty highways. 
of Nevada up into northern Nevada over into Utah then making this big circle back down to St. George, which is in southern Utah. And on top of that, Stephen had missed, allegedly, missed his rent for a couple months. Well, what kind of landlord lets somebody miss the rent for two or three months? I know that for me, I, I rent here in Madeira Beach, Florida. If I missed my rent for two or three months and I get along really, really well with my landlord, she's a really nice lady, um, she wouldn't let me get away with that. Now, if the landlord in Stephen's case was, you know, goofy and funny like Ralph Furley from Three's Company, then I get it. But we now know that the landlord was a criminal. Now, how do you think criminals feel about not their rent not being paid? See, I believe that Stephen Kocher's rent was being paid, and he was paying for it by working for the landlord, trafficking drugs all over the place. And I think what happened, at least giving Stephen some credit, is that maybe this landlord started thinking, you know what, the Stephen guy's good kid. What happens if he, you know, loose lips sink ships and maybe now knows about that stolen Porsche that I have on my property? And he's been working for me for a couple months, and I really, I mean, he's been great, but, man, I don't want to go to jail, and I, I have a fear he's going to get a conscience one of these days, and I'm going to get in trouble. So I'm going to set him up. And I'm thinking that the landlord, that you know that weird phone call I told you about that I saw on those records that was unlike the others? I'm thinking the reason that phone call was weird is because it was made from a phone that isn't your standard Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon phone. I'm guessing that it was made from one of these burner phones that drug dealers usually have. Steven picks it up. Landlord calls him and says, hey, I got a job for you. I need you to go down to Las Vegas. Here's it. So Stephen jumps in his car, goes back to his apartment where the landlord is. Landlord probably either gives him the directions or maybe even Stephen has been to Anthem before. We just didn't know about it. Landlord tells him, you're going to go down there and follow these directions, but don't park in front of the house. You know, don't do that. Don't draw attention to yourself. Park down the street. Go down to this address and this guy uh, will meet you about, you know, what you've been doing for me. And that's what happens. Steven gets in his car, goes down there, drives down there the next morning, follows the directions. He thinks that he's going to a particular house to meet somebody. Maybe he's done this before. But really, it's just a car parked out in front of a house that might be vacant. Steven gets in the vehicle, says, oh, yeah, yeah, let's go down to Henderson. We can go for lunch or whatever criminals say to somebody they want to lure to their death. Goes down into to Henderson. You see those pings that happen down there um, on the Stephanie Street, around the Stephanie Street area. Once again, a street that I know very, very well. And then the next morning, there's one ping 
that is right there at like Russell Road and the 95 right off a tower that's right there. And I've seen that tower too. I know exactly where it is. And after that, Stephen phone, Stephen's phone goes dead. I happen to believe that Stephen Kocher was murdered in one of those apartment complexes down there in Henderson and then disposed of. I think that that is what the facts show. Being that the landlord eventually once again ended up going to jail for a long time, that he got some of his cohorts, some of his business associates to say, hey, I think this guy's going to rat us all out. You know, we need to take care of him. I'm going to lure him down there into the nicest part of, really nice part of Las Vegas. He's going to park down the street so you can't be connected to him. You're going to pick him up, tell him you're taking him for a job. I got a job for him. And then you know what to do. That's my theory regarding the disappearance of Stephen Kocher. And it's combined with, once again, a few elements that I got to know because I was deeply involved with it, combined with all of the information that all of you know, that that is much more public, that you've heard on other podcasts and uh, disappeared episodes. Like I said, for the record, I don't know how many people know that Stephen Kocher's landlord ended up going to jail for drugs and other charges a few years later. That should be a huge red flag. Now, I will tell you one more thing regarding this that that may have something to do with all of this as well. Remember I told you about that cell phone tower that uh, that was up there in North Las Vegas? He just happened, His phone happened to be bouncing off of it while his friend's phone was bouncing off of it. There's a jail there. I often think about the idea. Now, it's a woman's jail. It just happens to be that the time that Stephen is in that area, it's a Sunday morning. That just happens to be the time that that jail lets people out of jail who have done their time, whether it's like a week or a month or whatever else. They let these people out on Sunday mornings. He's near that jail at the exact same time that somebody is being let out of jail. Is that I, I figured that out. Is that a coincidence? Or could it be that this is one more layer to this criminal conspiracy? Uh, maybe lured him down there. I just there's just something weird about that. I don't know how it figures in, but I remember finding that out back at the time and thinking, well, that's really strange. <laughs> to find out that he's right near that jail on the highway when when they're due to let people out. Obviously, he didn't pick anybody up because he was the only one who got out of the car. But could it be that he followed somebody down there and we just don't see that person, that car in the video? Maybe it's before we see his car come down the street or maybe it's after he met somebody somewhere and they just said, go down here and make a right so he just doesn't have the need the directions. Somebody, some criminal just got out of jail and he doesn't know it. I don't know. There's just there's so many avenues that you can take in this case, but I'm absolutely convinced uh, that Stephen was lured down there. It goes back to what I originally said about the case: is that uh, the to catch a predator. It reminded me of that, and I think in the end that's what it ended up being. So that's the case. I hope you were all able to learn something from this. How you can get involved how you can be a, a point man or a point woman in a case that happens near you to be involved. 
uh, to go do your own kind of, I guess they call it, sleuthing and trying to help out others who want to know more about the case, you can become your own source of information and reveal to your, you know, the other people on the internet stuff that they'd never find out otherwise, stuff, things that they wouldn't know because they don't live there, they don't know the area, they don't know the people, they don't know the culture. You can do that as well. I, I know you can. If I can do it, and I'd never, you know, here I am talking to these people all over the world who are interested in the disappearance of Stephen Kocher, and they're asking me about it, and that's how things get started. And people coming together like Laytonian, putting that whole timeline together, because once again, without that, most people would not know all of uh, Stephen's driving patterns, which I think are a main key in this case. So, And once again, when you get involved, you also never know what kind of information you're going to find out that other people that other people aren't. When I got involved, I could have never guessed that I was going to be sitting in the Channel 8 TV station who people I only see on TV and this guy's showing me Stephen's cell phone records. I could have never guessed that. I could have never guessed that I'd be taking part in a search. But it's interesting, it's helpful, it's useful, and it can help others understand the case and maybe – uh, one of these days, some regular person is going to solve the disappearance of Stephen Kocher. As for all of you, I hope you can solve uh, cases that happen near you as well. And that was the work I did on the Stephen Kocher case while I was in Las Vegas. It seems like yesterday. You should know that I recorded all of that in about February of 2017, and it's been the secret Stephen Kocher episode on the website uh, since then. And now it is out in the public for all of you to hear. I'm sure some of you have already heard it, but I know that many, many, many of you, especially newer listeners, have not. So I hope that gave you more insight into Stephen's disappearance than you got anywhere else. And once again, I hope that this serves as a template for anybody out there who wants to get involved in the investigation of a disappearance in your particular area. Unfortunately, to my knowledge, nothing has been done on Stephen's case since I recorded this in February 2017. I don't know if there have been any articles in the Las Vegas Review-Journal about his disappearance I really, frankly, have not kept up on it very well, but it is still unsolved. But I continue to believe, having recorded that a year and a half ago, but now talking to all of you about it in August of 2018, that my opinion is still the same. I think that Stephen's landlord had something to do with his disappearance, and I think it had to do with work that Stephen was doing for the landlord that nobody knew about. Now, you can listen to my interview with Stephen Huba, where we talk about a case that was already covered on Unfound, but now TribLive.com is going to cover it locally in the Pittsburgh area, and that is the disappearance of Donnie Smatlack. So happy to have Stephen Huba from the Tribune Review in Pittsburgh back on Unfound. Steve, welcome back. Thanks, Ed. Always good to be with you. Seems like we just spoke. Man, the time's uh, been flying. I know you had a vacation. Did you have a, did you have a nice vacation? Not the beginning of August. Yes. 
Yeah, great, great, definitely. Great, I'm sure you've earned it. Um, this month, uh, I think to uh, probably a few listeners of Unfound, this this month's case that the Trib uh, is covering uh, is somewhat familiar, being that Unfound covered it almost two years ago. But uh, the disappearance of Donnie Smatlack has not gotten any local Pittsburgh coverage, maybe since he disappeared. Um, you got to meet with uh, Linda and Donald earlier this week. How'd that go? Yeah, it went really well. Um, I, I was glad to have an opportunity to sit down with both of them. And um, we uh, we talked uh, just about, a lot about the kind of person Donnie was and, you know, the kind of son that he was. And obviously they're, they're parents and it's very painful for them and, you know, you always love your children no matter what they do. So um, that was very much their their viewpoint. Right. Um, and they have found a way to cope and get on with their life um, despite what happened to Donnie, you know, back in 2006. Right. Why don't we, I mean, I, I'm going to guess, I mean, Unfound has a lot more listeners now than it did back when I covered that case almost two years ago, and I'm sure many of them have not ever even listened to that episode yet. Uh, so why don't you just go over maybe a, a few of the facts, uh, you know, what went on, uh, what Linda and Donald could tell you about that day, what was going on in Donald's life, uh, Donnie's life, and his disappearance, just some of the facts. Okay. Yeah, um, Donnie uh, had been uh, living on his own for about nine months previously, like when he was going to college. Uh, he still lived at home. He commuted to Greensburg um, and uh, lived in his parents' basement. And um, he had recently gotten his own place. And um, his mom called him. Well, they spoke, uh, to his mom and Donnie, on January 28th of 2006. And he told her that he was going to go visit a friend in Belmont, which is in Westmoreland County, mm-hmm. um, not too far from where he lived. And she uh, said she called him back a little while later to invite him over for Sunday dinner and uh, she wasn't able to get through to him, and he never returned her call. So she got kind of concerned, and um, they went over to his place the next day, which was a Sunday, and uh, he wasn't there. And then she got a phone call from his friend who he was supposed to see, uh, I believe it was that Tuesday, and it was at that point where... um, she got really concerned and she filed a missing person report with the North for sales police department. Right. So, and so at that time, it, at that time in, in January, so he's missing. He was supposed to meet, go over to a friend of his, didn't show up. Friend finally figures out maybe something's going on, lets her know, but his car was missing as well. Um, what happened to his car? Right. What happened to his car? About a week or so later, maybe more like 10 days later in early February, um, his car was found in Oakland, which is a section of Pittsburgh. And uh, it was abandoned. And um, 
So the police took it in, they took fingerprints, they searched it, and um, really didn't find anything that, that advanced the case. Nothing unusual in the car at all, no signs of violence in the car, nothing in the trunk, nothing like that. Right. Hmm. So, but yeah, that was potentially a, potentially a major break in the case when they found the car. Right. And um, I also spoke with the investigating officer from North Versailles, and um, he said that he interviewed at least a, a two, two dozen people uh, mostly friends of Donnie's and um, everybody has kind of a different theory on what they think happened. And uh, he said he has a considerable case file on this case and he still considers it open. But right. with all leads currently exhausted. So, right. If I... He said also Please. this is a case that still haunts him. He said he thinks about this case almost daily. In your conversation with the, the police officer, if you can say, did anything concerning uh, Donnie's illegal activity come up? Yeah. Um, he did say that um, he felt like a history of drug activity, mostly concerning marijuana, uh, yeah. was very pertinent, in his words, to this case. Right. Um, so uh, that's that's very much front and center uh, mm. when it comes to this, this particular disappearance. Right. Would you say you got the feeling? Mind. Would you oh, say so? You'd say you got the feeling that being the Donnie disappeared, that maybe his activity, that activity, might have had something to do. We we don't know, but a possibility. Yes. Yeah. That's that's uh, the strong feeling that I got. Although he said ultimately, um, uh, it's it's pretty much conjecture and speculation. Right. Did he say? Um, in if you can say once again, uh, did he say anything about have there been any, any real leads since 2006, or would he would he? I know it's an open case, or would he say that it's considerably cold? And he, did he give me any idea on that? It, it it is pretty cold. He said there hasn't been any new information in a while. Wow. Um, so, and um, he has consulted with some other local law enforcement in Allegheny County, and they haven't received anything new. Nothing. So Nothing. This case is definitely calling out for some new information. It definitely is. I totally agree with you. And I'm hoping that I know and, and the listeners know that, you know, I did this uh, covered Donnie's case probably within the first 10 cases on Unfound. And over the last almost two years, I've had two people, you know, come forward with what I consider to be considerable information about Donnie's life um, before um, he disappeared. And my, of course, mm -hmm. my, my program is an international program. So what I'm hoping being that it's going to be in the Trib, you know, very, very Western Pennsylvania focused, that we can get more people like that to come forward. Certainly hoping mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it sounds like you covered the angles. I think it's really good that you got to talk to the police, the detective on the case. And then I think that that was a really good job on your part. 
Um, so we got this Sunday, two days from now, the disappearance of Donnie Smatlack from, what are we calling it? I know his parents live in North for Sales. Where was he living? You're going to have to remind me. Those areas uh, it, of- was, it wasn't it wasn't North for Sales. Um, okay. So, yeah, so they're saying that the disappearance was from North for Sales, um, which is a, a community in Allegheny County. Right. Okay, great. Uh, and the North Versailles police are the ones uh, responsible for it right now? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay, great. All right, Steve. Uh, the listeners can be looking for it. Uh, they can read your article, and then maybe they haven't listened to my episode on Donnie Smalik. They are certainly going to have a lot of uh, stuff to go over, I guess, between your article and my coverage from almost two years ago. But Steve, it uh, sounds like a uh, great job on your part, and I appreciate you uh, doing all the hard work. Well, thanks for your time, Ed. Okay, Steve, I'll talk to you next month. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.